Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. You might have heard tell that our German friends had an election recently, and they're currently in the, what we kind of jokingly referred to as speed dating process of putting together a governing coalition that's a little facetious because there's nothing really fast about it. But there is a little bit of a dating component between the multiple parties of the German political system. Germany's always been a fascinating country to me, not just because I lived there two different times and I love the German people. It's great memories of living there, and I've always kind of tried to keep tabs on what's going on on my second home over yonder. But it's also very important strategically and globally, economically, politically. Germany's the fifth largest economy in the world. It's the largest economy in Europe. It's the economic engine that really makes whatever's going on in the EU and Brussels possible. Germany has always been kind of the buffer area, even going back to the Cold War and NATO days between the West and the East. And even today, Germany is one of the central players anytime we have to do anything dealing with Russia, things like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the way Putin behaves himself. And no leader has been maybe more uniquely qualified to deal with things like Putin, like East and West reconciliation, like the new European order, as much as Angela Merkel. Now, what's really amazing about her is She's been in power as chancellor longer than we've had iPhones. She's been head of her political party since before 9-11. That's a lot of history. That's a lot of change. And with her passing off the scene now and handing reins of power over to somebody else, that's going to be a major adjustment, not just for the German people, but for the world order and how other countries deal with this very important ally. And, of course, America has long-standing ties in Germany. We have our largest overseas military presence and our largest presence of American citizens in any foreign country in Germany. Germany's always been a good friend of us since World War II, and we want to make sure that continues. So let's talk to Alexander Bowen. He's from Young Voices UK. He's a contributor for them. He's also a student in Paris, but his family immigrated to the UK from Germany. He has family ties there. He studied it. He knows this stuff backwards and forwards. He's going to explain to us not just the different political parties and issues that went into the German election, but also the background and legacy of Angela Merkel, who he studied and written about quite extensively and somebody that he admires. How much importance that the most powerful woman in the world politically, who's getting ready to pass off the scene, how she went from a scientist to a politician after the Berlin Wall fell, how being born in the Western Bloc but growing up in the Eastern Bloc under some really unique circumstances kind of made her the perfect person for a reunified Germany going forward. And how her mastery of the Russian language and knowing Russian culture put her as a great buffer between Vladimir Putin and the other Western order states. These are all things we're going to talk to with Alexander Bowen of Young Voices UK. Great information, learning more about 
a very important part of the world, how we got to where we are now, and where Germany's going forward, both as a country and as a people. We're going to talk about our ally, Germany, my second home away from home, with Alexander Bowen on this episode of Herd Tell, right after this. So let's talk a little bit German elections. We're glad to be joined with another uh, Young Voices partner with us, Alexander Bowen. How are you, sir? I am good, thank you. How are you? I'm fantastic. Um, we're going to be talking Germany, but you're actually coming to us through the magic of the internet from Paris, France. Uh, let folks know a little bit how you know an Englishman in Paris got to be a German election expert. <laughs> um, so my family's German. Um, so they left Germany during the Second World War and they moved to the UK. Uh, and then obviously I decided to come to a French university. And during the course of that, because I'm studying politics and government, I've been doing a lot of work on Germany specifically. So I, I've done essays, for instance, on Die Linke. And um, so that's the left party in Germany. Uh, and I've done some work on the Social Democrats in the 2000s, specifically on Gerhard Schroeder and the economic liberalisation that happened in Germany then. So I'm just very interested in Germany, partially because of the family connection, but partially because, honestly, um, Angela Merkel, especially, I find just fascinating. Now, that's a whole lot of historical cross streams you've got going there in your family history and current events. Um, I, I just my background, I lived in Germany twice. I have a great affinity for the German people. Uh, I did get to be in Germany during those Gerhard Schroeder years when relations with uh, the Americans were somewhat strained right after 9-11, the initial thing, and then he was very vocal about our entry into Iraq, so it was an interesting political dynamic. But talking about these elections, uh, Gerhard Schroeder, and then we went to Angela Merkel, I don't know that people realize that she's been in power in Germany longer than we've had iPhones. This has really been a long, long run of power uh, for Angela Merkel. So let's start there. When she first came to power, the Gerhard Schroeder years, the changes that went on uh, in that time, the mid-2000s, that brought her to power to kind of set up what happened in the last few weeks in German politics. So this is really interesting. It's Angela Merkel's been leader of her political party since 2000. So that's the Christian Democratic Union. So it's wow. like liberal conservatives, moderates. Um, she stopped being their leader in 2018 when she announced she was eventually going to step down. But importantly, there was an election in 2002. And in 2002, she was stopped from running by the men of her own party who saw her as, frankly, not one of them and not somebody who was going to win an election. But she was very smart about this, actually, and she ended up doing a, almost like a trade deal with them, if you could call it that, where they they swapped the leadership of the political party inside of parliament. So that's equivalent to, say, being um, House Majority Leader in the US for her not running to be Chancellor. So equivalent of swapping leadership in the House for not running to be President, um, which was really clever deal for her to make because then in 2002 her party lost the election which then meant that schroeder returned another term with the greens but importantly what happens in 2005 is there's a state election in what some people would call like german california so it's north rhine westphalia so it's home to cities like cologne the Ruhr. it's like a, a an urban populated region 
experiencing some industrial decline. Some people would call it the German Rust Belt, but that is perhaps harsh. And in that election, her party wins the election. And so the upper house, the Bundesrat, which is the equivalent to the Senate, the government no longer has a majority in that house. And Gerhard Schroeder is very worried about that. So he calls a snap election because he doesn't think because he doesn't think he'll be able to continue with his policies because his majority is getting smaller and smaller. So, for instance, there's a confidence vote shortly after his his um, Hartz reforms, which are sort of Clinton style liberalizations of the labor market. And in that, some members of his own party and some members of the Greens vote against his government to even remain in office. So he's got some backbench issues, but then he also no longer has a majority in the Bundesrat, so the Senate. So he calls this snap election for the federal level. It's very interesting because at the time of this election, Angela Merkel's party, the CDU, and their allies in Bavaria, so that's German Texas, um, they have together in the polls, they're at like 50% fairly consistently. So they were on the precipice of winning an outright majority by themselves. And what's very interesting is in that campaign, Merkel, in, in, in an attempt to appeal to the right of the party, because she's very moderate, so she's never really appealed to them very much, but in an attempt to, she appoints this economics professor who is what could best be described as maybe a libertarian populist. He, he's, he proposes, for instance, a flat tax. He has some very interesting thoughts on, say, the gold standard. So he's quite out there, especially by German standards. And in this campaign, it, it's fair to say he pretty much sinks her campaign. They, they end up going from, from nearly 50% down to 30s, like 35% for their party. And what's really interesting about this is she has to keep distancing herself from him. At the same time, Gerhard Schroeder is slowly pulling back support because of that. So in the actual election that happens, her CDU-CSU and Gerhard Schroeder's SPD, so that's the Social Democrats, so centre-left, they come within 0.1% of each other in the election result. So it's incredibly tight. It's about 100,000 votes between the two parties. And what's really interesting is the result has what we would call a red, red, green possibility. So that's socialists, social democrats and the greens had a majority in the parliament. But then Merkel was the largest party. Her CDU was the largest party. So the combination of that makes forming a government incredibly difficult because you have the left majority but then the right won the plurality and the other problem here is that the socialists part of them broke away from the social democrats just a few years prior and there's also this legacy of some of them being from east germany so the ruling party of east germany became part of this party so to, the Social Democrats don't want to form a coalition with them, to be clear. These people are anti-NATO, they're frankly pro-Russia, they, they're, they're very problematic for governing in Germany. So what ends up happening is at the post-election debates, which they have in Germany every year, it's equivalent to, say, Joe Biden and Donald Trump having, having a debate on like the 9th of November. 
to like a couple of days after. But in Germany, it's normally the evening of, which is far, far worse. Gerhard Schroeder is bullying her on TV. He's incredibly disrespectful. He is misogynistic to her. He's like, no, I have won. It's all the, it's all the bravado that people, especially in Germany, find incredibly distasteful. And his own backbenchers was, were caused to revolt by his behaviour at this debate. It's incredibly, it's incredibly rude behaviour. It's awful behaviour. Indeed, a left-wing newspaper in Germany says it's an embarrassment to German women. That's how bad it is. A, a newspaper aligned with his party says he is embarrassing to German women. And that really ends up with Schroeder being deposed by his own party, who force him into negotiating with Angela Merkel. So in that election, the end result ends up being a grand coalition. So that's the Christian Democratic Union, so the Liberal Conservatives, the Christian Social Union, so that's the Bavarian branch of the Liberal Conservatives, and the Social Democrats forming a coalition. And that's really interesting because it, it has happened before in German history. It just doesn't tend to happen. And that's mainly a result of the presence of the left party in parliament for the first time in a sizable force. It's amazing with Angela Merkel when she came to power and you, and you talked about how Schroeder really turned a lot of people off. He was also saying some wonderful things about us Americans at the time, as I recall, but we'll talk about that at another time. <laughs> um, he, She really is a generational type of, of figure because she was born in West Germany, but she grew up in East Germany. So when you talk about her moderation and kind of her political acumen and the way her background really uh, attunes to the Germany post reunification in a unique way, doesn't it? Yeah, it's really interesting. So her mother, for instance, was a Latin and English teacher, both of which were considered bourgeois subjects. So they weren't taught in East Germany. So her mother was effectively unemployed despite having a, like a very high skilled educational career. And her father was a pastor. And that obviously, in East Germany, which is an atheist state, being, being a priest is quite controversial. And but he moved he, there, didn't he? Not to interrupt yeah, you, but he, 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 she was an infant. They lived in uh, Hamburg, I believe. And he yeah. took a pastorate in East Germany. That, was, that had to be somewhat unusual for that time period, yeah? He, it was very unusual. Not many people are going that way. Like, um, after, after the... But prior to the wall, but after the war, you have about 10 million people moving between East Germany, um, formerly German land that is now part of Poland, and being displaced. So you end up with quite a large movement, and very few people are picking to go to East Germany. But he, he sees his purpose as, as almost spreading religion inside of East Germany, which is really interesting. Um, he has, some people have said at least, he has this idea of sort of Christian socialism or evangelical leftism, which is the idea of um, Jesus lived among fishermen, you should too, that idea. The, the end result of that is this really odd situation where he's living as a, as a priest in an atheist state under supervision, but he is also treated relatively well by the state. For instance, he's one of, he's one of the few families to have two cars and one of them being a Western car which is very, very unusual for the time. But there was obviously some people have suggested it was a way for the government of East Germany to make him look bad, to create a distance between himself and his congregation. So for Merkel, she, she's growing up in this household that is 
middle class in a state where few people are middle class in the same way she is but she's also growing up slightly separated from everyone else due to her protestant father and what, what this has the effect of is in her school she has to be very careful throughout her whole time growing up for instance at one point towards the end of her school so i think she was 17 or so they put on a play in her school and that the play they do is quite controversial and they all realize that we should probably not have done this and if it was not for the intervention of somebody somebody's relative their university prospects for instance could have been taken away so she 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 spends her life under under this emotional control which is really really odd which she has said is why she entered science because in science things are wrong or they're not and well that's debatable obviously but that's what she said um so she enters into the into science and then she spends several years pursuing science she, she grows up doing this um and then in 1989 as things are starting to to take a downturn with the regime a few weeks prior to the berlin wall falling she's just this scientist she she's just doing her her daily life but then once the wall falls what she does if you can just picture the scene here she turns up at a small german political party called democratic awakening this is in east germany they're preparing for the first elections democratic awakening is very small like um, maybe maybe two percent of the population support it very very small and she turns up with some computers and she just offers to help out. It's, it's, it's very odd how she, she just offered to help out and then one day she became German Chancellor. But there's obviously that time difference in between. And how does, so, because she shows up with this Democratic Awakening in, I guess this is 1990, 91 time now, yeah. period. But who is... Angela Merkel when she embarks into politics because we've talked about her background. She's this uh, fluent Russian-speaking German who grew up obviously in the Eastern Bloc with that sort of thing, but also had a a religious upbringing, you would assume, at least by German standards. She has a doctorate in quantum chemistry, of all things. She studied physics. This, this is not a normal career path for a politico. And then she kind of shows up and just starts, for lack of a better term, kind of running the table through a political scene that is very unsettled after reunification. You know, there there was no history for a reunified government. Everybody was kind of making it up as they went along. And she just sort of navigated it right to the top, didn't she? Yeah, well, what's really interesting is when she shows up, she eventually ends up getting appointed as the, as the deputy spokesperson for this political party after volunteering for a while and then this democratic awakening party allies with the christian democrats and the christian social union so so the equivalents to the west german political parties and they end up in that election winning 40 percent of the vote in east germany so this is the this is the only democratic east german election and after that her talent is spotted and she ends up as deputy press officer for the the government of east germany and but it's just bizarre because a few a few months ago she's volunteering and doing computers and now she's the deputy government spokeswoman. And after that, in the first reunified cabinet, she is appointed to and she's appointed as Minister for Women and Youth. So she's gone in the course of a year from being 
a, a scientist who is living in a house that she was squatting in, let's just be clear about that, to the, the Minister for Women and Families in a reunified German government. It is an exceptionally speedy rise. When, uh, when we talk about her, her tenure as Chancellor, uh, what's some of the things that people should take away from it? We know, obviously, um, the American audience, we know it mostly from a foreign policy background. Uh, some of that was because of her taking over from Gerhard Schroeder. So she was acutely aware that she had some relationship repairing to doing with allies, like with the U.S., Canada. There was a thing with Stephen Harper back in the early days. So we know the foreign policy stuff, but what what's sort of her legacy of these Angela Merkel years as her chancellorship? We know all the EU stuff, but um, especially now with the U.K., uh, with the Brexit, Germany is even more so the economic engine that lets Brussels do all the things they do. Germany is the center of a lot of European politics and world politics. So what's a couple of the takeaways of her tenure as she starts to pass off the scene now? This is a really interesting question to ask because there is almost not an answer to it. Because if you think about previous German chancellors that have had the same tenure as her, so Konrad Adenauer, Helmut Kohl's legacy is reunification. Konrad Adenauer's legacy is both democracy and the German economic miracle. And even, even say, Willy Brandt, he has Ostpolitik. So that's reaching out to the Soviet Union and to East Germany. Angela Merkel's legacy is almost too complex to define as a single phrase. Her legacy is crisis management fundamentally. So if we think about what she's had to deal with, she's had the European debt crisis, which is obviously a massive crisis back in 2010 to 2015. She's had Brexit to deal with. She's had Donald Trump to deal with. Um, She's had the Crimean crisis. She's had the Syrian migrant crisis. She's had the, the global financial crisis. She has had the COVID crisis and she's beginning to have the climate crisis. So she's consistently been dealing with crises. She's almost never had a time without crises. This is what makes her, her legacy, is that she's dealt with crises. She she hasn't got a standout, we have done this moment. But at, towards the end of it, we're beginning to see a, a standout moment almost, which is the beginning of European sovereign debt. So a collective European debt, which some people have called as Europe's Hamilton moment. But she was never really pro that in the same way that say her finance minister Olaf Scholz was so her legacy is crisis management she she does not have a standout issue in the same way the other ones do and that that's what makes her so unique is to deal with say the European debt crisis in the way she has to deal with the Covid crisis in the way she's had has she's consistently dealt with crises exceptionally well and in a way that I, I frankly don't think other people would have dealt with in such a way. One more thing about her before we move on to the recent election. On the world stage, she was almost uniquely qualified to deal with Russia and Vladimir Putin. Uh, She speaks Russian fluently. She's won awards in school for, she understands Russian. She grew up in the Eastern Bloc, like we already said, so she understands the background. Uh, She has called him out on multiple occasions. There's been incidents. uh, There was the famous dog incident. Uh, where yes. she she's 
uh, for for the audience that doesn't know that she she was attacked by a dog years and years ago. She has a fear of dogs, and and Putin brought his dog to a meeting, and he says he didn't know, but whatever. And then he she called him out and said he has to prove he's a man. He's afraid of his own weakness. Kind of a famous soundbite from her. But with all the stuff going on, and and let's let's just lay it out on the table. Her predecessor Gerard Schroeder is very entangled in Russian businesses and so forth. And there's been accusations that there, there may have been some untoward things back in the day, but anyway, uh, with Nord Stream two, with the geopolitical environment, uh, with her passing off the world and in Germany itself and a lot of other places, the concern is with America kind of not paying a lot of attention to foreign policy right now. One of the great buffers to Vladimir Putin is getting ready to depart the scene. Is that the feeling that you get as well? Because she seems to have been kind of the one that's had his number all along and understood him and wasn't afraid to kind of call him out on the world stage. I think Merkel is uh, what you I would personally describe as a reluctant Russophobe almost. She, she likes Russian culture. She won a trip to go to Moscow when she was a child. It's also worth mentioning that um, Vladimir Putin, when he was a KGB agent, worked in Dresden for a while. Correct. So he's familiar with Germany as well. Yep. And the the biggest thing here is Angela Merkel never wanted to take a hard line on Russia. If you, if you look at what she was doing in the early years, she was actually trying to facilitate Bush being more open with it. She was very supportive of, say, his at- actions with Putin to try and encourage him to join, say, the G8. Um, and it, it slowly begins to change with Georgia when the Russians invade Georgia. But it doesn't fully change until the Crimean crisis. Because obviously in the Crimean crisis, you have the president of Ukraine being overthrown by... Uh, by um, overthrown might be the way. Insurrection's being, probably a good way to call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Being, being insurrected, insurrected by a sort of popular revolt uh, of... Europhiles, which then obviously has the resort of Putin, A, invading Crimea to secure Russian bases, but then also funneling in his little green men into eastern Ukraine, where the Russian population is quite high, to, to sort of slowly break away and increase his control over the country. And I think that's when Merkel really takes more serious actions on Russia. But she she's very careful because... In the case of Germany, there is that there is the gas aspect, but I think the gas aspect tends to be slightly overstated, especially in America. Because if you think Germany's energy mix is something like twenty five percent gas, and about a third of that is Russian, so it's not a particularly huge share of their energy mix, but it is still there. So she's obviously a bit more careful than other people would be over actions with Russia, but she is also constrained because the European Council the way the sanctions mechanism works there. So that's the that's the heads of government that meet and decide some EU policy, especially top-level policy like sanctions. The way that works there is sanctions have to be unanimously approved, which obviously causes several problems if you're trying to sanction somebody and say the Russians have influenced, say, Cyprus or Greece or Hungary or Poland, but less so Poland, to block these sanctions. So she's never really gone as far in Russia as I think Americans especially would like her to. But I think part of that is the result of the Obama, the Obama pivot to Asia, which almost de-emphasized the role of Europe to American security and foreign policy. So 
I think Americans would like Germany to take a more proactive role, but I don't think Germans want to take a more proactive role. Let's move on to the the recent elections now. Uh, her handpicked successor kind of fell off the scene before the elections really got going. <laughs> so this kind of turned into a little bit of a free-for-all. They had three major candidates that really had a good look at this thing. But what happened here, because her Christian Democrats um, have lost to the Social Democrats, the SD, SPD, excuse me, uh, by, by a bit of a margin. Uh, so now they're trying to put a government together for, again, this is the parliamentary system, so it's a little bit of a foreign thing to an American audience. Kind of just walk folks through where they're at with this, with the two larger coalitions. Then we have the smaller parties. Uh, but the two big ones, especially trying to form this government and who's going to take over the mantle for Angela Merkel now that she's done. So we have two primary coalition types in Germany at the moment. Historically, it's been the Social Democrats and the Greens on the left and on the right, the Free Democrats and the Christian Democrats. So that's liberals and conservatives. And sometimes at the state level, you have alternate coalitions. So sometimes you'll have the Social Democrats and the and the Greens and the left parties as socialists. And sometimes you'll have the Greens and the Christian Democrats and the Liberals called the Jamaica Coalition. And then you'll have a whole variety of coalitions like that at local levels, especially. And what they're trying to do at the national level now is negotiate two unprecedented coalitions. So unprecedented at a national level, they've both been done at local level. One's called Traffic Light Coalition after the party colour. So that's the Social Democratic Party, the Green Party, and then the Liberal Party. But they're not liberal in the American sense. They're liberal in the European sense. So they're, they're market liberals. So they're the socially, socially liberal, fiscally conservative. They're, they may be comparable to, say, Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, for instance. They're, they're, they're not someone who would be called liberal in America at all. And that's one type of coalition, that's coalition with the Social Democrats leading, but the other coalition type that trying, is trying to be negotiated at the moment is the Christian Democrats, the Greens and the Liberals. And the interesting thing about this one, so this one is called the Jamaica Coalition. They tried to negotiate this in 2017, but it fell down after the Liberal leader, Christian Lindner, um, he he poo-pooed the idea in the end. He walked away from negotiations because the Greens weren't conceding enough, is what he alleged. But the Greens and the Christian Democrats both agreed and that he was the problem. And the polling afterwards showed he was the problem. So this time around, he has to be much more careful about who he coalitions with and who he discusses coalitioning with. Because previous election, they'd won 11% of the vote and after he failed to form a coalition with the with the Greens and the Christian Democrats, he ended up going to 6% in all of the opinion polls. He was very unpopular for a long stretch of time, until COVID, to be precise. Um, so these two coalitions are both trying to be formed. The Social Democrats obviously want their coalition to lead. They're seen as having the mandate to govern by the public. So it's about 60% of the public would like the Social Democratic leader to replace Merkel. So he's Olaf Scholz, who is currently Finance Minister, so Secretary of the Treasury, and Deputy Chancellor, so Vice President. And then the other candidates for the Christian Democrats, he's quite unpopular now. He, for a long time, was very popular. He had, he had a very good reputation as a sort of jovial, 
jolly man, very charismatic, very folksy almost. It's like, say, maybe Steve Bullock. He had this very jolly reputation, but he just has not lived up to it at the national level. So the biggest moment for him was when he, he there was very bad flooding in Germany. I'm sure you'll have seen it. Yes. And during the president's speech at the flood, he was caught in the background laughing. But he wasn't laughing at the speech, which was which was very depressing speech, to be honest. Um, he was laughing at a journalist who was lying on the floor to try and take a picture. And he was laughing with his colleagues about this. But obviously the photo that was taken is him laughing and then the president giving an incredibly sad, somber speech. And that just destroys that last bit of his reputation. It, it, it pummels it because he's seen as laughing at this, this tragic event. And it, it, it all goes down from there for him. And that really helps Olaf Scholz because he, he's the main social democratic. He's the social democratic chancellor candidate. He's not the social democratic leader, though. And he benefits from that. He's also seen as more reliable, more trustworthy. So he, he really picks up the votes from that. At one point, though, in April, the Green Party had been polling as the number one political party for a bit. They'd been polling at 25%, overtaken the Christian Democrats, well overtaken the Social Democrats. But what happens for Green leader Annalena Baerbock, who's also the Chancellor candidate, she destroys herself through very minor scandals. So, for instance, part of her book is allegedly slightly plagiarised. Part of her CV is slightly overstated. It's very, very minor scandals. Um, one of them is that she failed to declare that she'd received a bonus payment on her public tax returns. So she, she'd failed to do very minor things, which for other candidates would not have sunk them at all. But for her, some for some reason, she gets, I would call it an excessive amount of media attention over these very, very small scandals. Like, think about, say, America, Donald Trump can say, grab her by the and that is that is the kind of massive scandal that in Germany would cause you to, like, completely collapse. But even a tiny, tiny scandal, like, she overstated her CV, caused her to go down. It's very odd. Like, uh, Germany, traditionally, the politicians have got quite academic backgrounds. So... For instance, it's Dr. Angela Merkel. There's a lot of doctors in German politics. It's, it's very traditional. So overstating your academic qualifications has quite big effects on public trust. Indeed, in 2011, the defence minister, who was very popular, had to resign because he plagiarised part of his PhD. There was, there was a big scandal of it. It was, ended up being about 20 politicians had to resign because of plagiarising bits of their PhD, master's thesis and so on. It ended up being a surprisingly big scandal just over something as minor as that, if we're being honest. So she tanks herself through very minor scandals. Armin Lachey tanks himself from laughing at an event. And Olaf Scholz is just there, not making any gaffes, not making any major mistakes. He is just there being stable. And German people, you know, love stability. In in Germany, he's called the Scholzomat. So that's the Schultz machine, because he's quite robotic. If people think Angela Merkel is uncharismatic, he is anti-charismatic. He has not got any charisma to be nice. He's incredibly technocratic in the same way Merkel is in some regard. And he, he just 
it's stuck in the middle. That, that's quite the testimonial when we have to delineate down the charisma that far. A couple other interesting things from this election. Underneath all this, you talked about traditionally the Greens are kind of a part of a left. They had a rather interesting election that kind of leaves some people wondering what their future is, didn't they? Yeah, so the Green Party this election did surprisingly well, but did not do as well as they had hoped for. So originally, in in 2019, we had the European Parliament elections. So in the European Parliament elections, the Greens came second, 20% of the vote. They ended up picking up 20% of the vote in the European Parliament elections, which meant they'd come a very strong second. And this was after some very successful regional elections as well. So in Bavaria, they'd overtaken the Social Democrats. And then in Hesse, they'd overtaken the Social Democrats. So they'd started being very successful at the state level and then at the national level at the European Parliament elections. So they were expected in the run-up to the elections to come second. They'd been polling at about 20% consistently, so just below the Christian Democrats. Then COVID hits and the Christian Democrats fly off. Merkel's so popular, she's pulling in 90% popularity ratings again because of a handling of COVID, which ends up the Greens lose a large amount of support as a result. And then once German voters realise Merkel is stepping down, and once the CDU nominate Armin Lachey as their candidate to replace her, people start thinking, actually, we don't want Armin Lachey. So they start going to, to Annalena Baerbock and the Greens. And immediately after nominating her, so there was two candidates to be German, Green Party leader for our Chancellor candidate. So it's Robert Halbeck, who's more elderly, he's male, he's more reliable almost. And then Annalena Baerbock, who's 40, she's young, she's, well, young by German political standards, she's exciting. So they end up picking Annalena Baerbock. And immediately after they pick her, she and the Green Party are on 25% in the polls, the Christian Democrats are on 24%. So it looks like they'll win or at the very least come a very close second. But the scandals obviously have the derailing effect. So in the election, they end up getting about 14.5% of the vote, which is is an improvement on last time. It's an improvement from 8% last time, but it's not it's not what they'd hoped for. So for instance, when they're at their um, post-election party, they're applauding and they're happy, but it's almost, we could have done better and that they really did think they were going to do better but still it's an important surge it's just not the level of surge they would have liked there's another surge going on that people are kind of keeping an eye on and it's even kind of starting to people outside of germany are starting to pay a little bit of attention to but there's this afd party the alternate for germany they they seem to have almost got kind of a block in the eastern kind of the old eastern block southeastern parts of germany um this is a far right party this is a very well i'll let you explain it. you can explain it better to me what the afd is but it, it's something that a lot of people are starting to pay a lot of attention to uh especially now that there's a, a bit of a changing of the guard in german politics and fo- folks are kind of wondering what's going to happen in the future here well the afd is very interesting because you said it's had a surge but it's actually had a negative surge so it's lost about two percent of the vote compared to the last election. So in the last election it was on 12.6%, now it's on 10% and the fifth party in terms of size. So it's negatively surged, but it, it has picked up a lot of the first past the post seats. So in Germany, there are 299 constituency seats and they've ended up picking up about 25, 30 of those first past the post seats. 
mostly in so Saxony and Thuringia, which are very poor regions of East Germany. And they've also done quite well in Saxony-Anhalt, which is Germany's poorest region. So they're doing well in East Germany, which historically, so say 20 years ago, the Socialist Party was doing very well and not the Social Democrats, the Socialists. They've done quite well, but only in East Germany. So if, for instance, say you looked at a map of where the AFD have gained and where they've decreased, in, in say, the south of Germany, the west of Germany, the AFD has lost vote share massively. They, they've gone down, for instance, in Bavaria, they've gone down by 4%. In North Rhine-Westphalia, they've gone down, down by 3%. In several states, in Western South Germany, they've gone down. In East Germany, they've only gone down by a very small amount or gone slightly up. So, so in Saxony-Anhalt, they stayed level. In Mecklenburg, they stayed level. So they're staying level in East Germany whilst going down in the West. But because other political parties, particularly the Christian Democrats, have gone down even faster in East Germany has had this effect of making them look like they've surged. So for the AFD, it was a very mixed bag, this election. Um, personally, and you characterise them as far right. I would personally characterise them as far right at the moment. But historically, when they were founded, they were founded by a collection of economics professors. So they were not a far right party particularly. They were actually allied with the UK Conservatives. They're what people would call maybe national conservatives at the beginning. They're not completely opposed to the euro. They're opposed to the bailout regime and they're opposed to supporting Greece. They, they would say advocate for a Grexit and they're a bit more strict on immigration. But they're not far right in the, in the current way that the AFDR. But what ends up happening is Frauke Petri becomes leader after a very tense battle between the sort, almost the liberal wing of the AFD, which I don't think is a very useful term nowadays, um, and between the hardcore of the AFD. And she ends up taking a middle ground approach between these two factions and making them a hard right party. So they're neither as far right as, say, um, Marine Le Pen in France uh, is, and they're neither as, as moderate as the Conservatives in the UK are. So they're, they're taking a very split ground approach. But then what happens is she, she does very well in these state elections during the migration crisis. So in Saxony, they, they make major gains. In Saxony-Anhalt, they come second. They're consistently doing very well in state elections. But then she gets ousted by a group from her main position. And the group she's ousted by is this very, very distasteful, hard right, far right faction of her political party. So in 2017, she actually quits the party. Their own party leader quits and forms her own party. So she's now basically irrelevant because it's just her. So she gets replaced and the people she's replaced by uh, are further to the right of her. And she was already relatively far right. But these people are trying to moderate themselves. But the problem is, the base doesn't want to be moderated and neither do some of the MPs. So there's this one politician called um, Bjorn Ho um, and Bern Lucke. So they're both very, very unpleasant people. Indeed, the German court said it wasn't slanderous to describe one of them as fascist. That's, that's how problematic they are. Um, they're, they're the leader of the, the, the faction called De Flugel, which is an incredibly horrible group of people, frankly. It's, it's the group that the Constitutional Court said could accurately be described as fascists. 
they're deeply unpleasant people and they're slowly growing in influence inside of the party and what we've seen in the past with German hard right and far right parties is that they can achieve some success but the minute they start becoming further and further right there's a certain point where the German public no matter how far right they themselves might be will just not support it in any major scale so for instance the National Democratic Party so they're they're Nazis they're, that's what national democracy national socialism is the same idea it's just a rebranding of it this political party their problem is at first they were achieving some support but they radicalize and radicalize and this has the effect of making them politically unpalatable there was also this party in Germany called the Republicans so they start out as like the American Republicans. They start out as a party of the right, to the right of the CDU and to the right of the Christian Social Union. But they never, they never hold it together. They get infiltrated by incredibly far-right groups and that just pulls them down. So they're going from doing quite well in state elections to just being below the threshold. So in Germany, the electoral threshold is 5%. So if you score under 5%, you just get excluded from parliament. And this has the effect of meaning very radical parties get excluded. So the more you radicalize, the higher risk there is. Because for the AFD, they want to they want to appeal to people, but by radicalizing, they stop appealing to people. It's the almost a gap between their membership. So the party members are much further to the right than their potential voters, which has had the effect of pulling the party rightwards. There's also this other thing to talk about is in the most recent election, they've taken a very lockdown skeptic covid skeptic approach but they would argue they've also been undermined by this other political party called the free voters who are almost center right recently they've become slightly more radical um, but they're, they're mainly a center right party the, the free voters indeed um one of their co-leaders alice Wiedel, um who co-chancellor candidate sorry she has argued that if it wasn't for the free voters, they would have increased their vote share because they were doing well with COVID skeptic groups. But that really is limited who they can appeal to. By being as right wing as they are, their appeal is limited mostly to a segment of the public who are either so disaffected that they're the only people left to vote for or are so aggressively opposed to say COVID restrictions or immigration that they're the only group left to vote for. It's very interesting because if you look on say a map you can now see a very clear dividing line between East and West Germany. You were able to see it in the last election but I think now it's even clearer where say in, in Gorlitz, so this is the most eastern part of Germany, the AFD getting 35% of the vote whereas then say in say Aachen, which is the most western part of Germany, they're getting 4% of the vote. So there's this huge gap, again, between left, uh, between East Germany and West Germany. And it doesn't seem to be closing. The AFD would like it to close, allegedly. And I'm, I'm not convinced they would because their policies don't actually provide for the closure of this gap. Just to put a bow on all this, what, what do you see as kind of the near-term future of Germany? It's the fourth largest economy in the world. It's the largest economy in Europe. It's the linchpin that keeps the EU going. Uh, America has its largest overseas military presence in Germany. We've already talked about you know, Russia's not going anywhere. Turkey's what Turkey is in NATO. NATO's kind of in flux. 
Obviously, a lot of world events are still going to pivot with Germany being kind of in the center of a lot of that, uh, not just politically, but just in the future. We've we've kind of already talked about, it too, that we're kind of a generation removed from reunification. So Germany's kind of going into another phase after the reunification two or three decades now. What do you see as the future of Germany, especially as we try to watch it as a world events kind of perspective? In some ways, this election has had, is going to have a very big impact on the future of Germany. But in some ways, it's going to have very little impact. So politically, Olaf Scholz and Angela Merkel, if we're being honest, disagree on very little. Armin Lachey and Olaf Scholz, if we're being honest, they disagree on very little. It's not the kind of polarisation that you have in, say, America or even, even in the UK. So... In some ways, the policies won't change very much. But there is one very interesting thing, I think, especially for Americans. There's been a proposed budget by the Social Democrats for the military. So at the moment, the German military spends about 49 billion euros. And the proposal is, with inflation, that by 2025, it would drop to about 45 million euros versus today. So that's in today's numbers, but inflation adjusted. That would be a big net effect of decreasing German military spending from about 1.2% to about 0.9%, which is obviously moving further away from the NATO target. So that's very interesting for Americans because obviously Donald Trump spent a very long time demanding Germany spends more in its military. At the same time, the Christian Democrats would like to increase the military spending if not necessarily for the sake of the military, but for the sake of international commitments. So in the case of the military, which is one of the few areas where there is a disagreement, I would like a big noticeable disagreement. If they end up with Armin Lachey as chancellor, military spending is likely to increase with GDP. It is likely not to hit 2%, but say 1.5% of GDP. But if it ends up with Olaf Scholz as chancellor, it's probably likely to continue decreasing to, say, 1% of GDP, which just matters of, is Germany's place in the world to sort of signal that send. In the case of the of moving towards the 2%, it's, it's reinforcing the transatlantic alliance. But in the case of moving towards 1%, what's likely to mean is an increase in European defence union, because Germans are very reluctant to spend on their own defence. And other countries are quite reluctant to let them almost. But if the money is spent collectively, they tend to be happier. So if it's spent at a European level through, say, the creation of PESCO, so that's permanent structured cooperation that began in 2017, they tend to be more willing to support it because they feel like it's checked and that they feel like it is almost a tool of peace if it's done at a European level. So it's a one side tends to favour more national level army spending and the other tends to favour more European level armed spending. But neither favour armed spending in, say, the American way. If, if, for instance, you said, let's have an $800 billion budget for the military, nobody would support that. Uh, Alexander Bowen, this has been educational. I love talking a little bit of Germany because, again, I, I spent five years of my life there, so I have a great affinity for the people. I have great memories there. Uh, but it's geopolitically it's it's going to be a very important thing to pay attention to and i appreciate your great great insight on this today uh tell folks where they can find you and follow you and what you've got going on so they can continue to get your insight going forward um so if they want to follow me they can find me on twitter and the twitter is at a d b zero w e n fantastic they can also follow the london new libs if they're interested in finding out 
more about sort of some new uh, some neoliberal and new liberal policy positions that I've been working on with some other people. Great stuff. I appreciate your time today, my friend. I look forward to talking to you in the future about things. And thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you, sir. Thank you. In 2019, Angela Merkel was giving the commencement address to the graduating class of Harvard, which is appropriate enough as she herself was an academic and scientist before entering politics some 30 years ago. And her coda that she gave the graduating class is something that probably fits her personally leaving office and this major change in the whole country of Germany and the world itself. She said this, That's why I want to leave this with you. Tear down walls of ignorance and narrow-mindedness, for nothing has to stay as it is. It's six things. Take joint action in the interest of the moderate lateral global world. Keep asking yourself, am I doing something because it's right or simply because it's possible? Don't forget that freedom is never something that can be taken for granted. Surprise yourself with what is possible. Remember that openness always involves risk. Letting go of the past and the old is part of the new beginning. Above all, nothing can be taken for granted. And everything is possible. While Angela Merkel said that in 2019 to a graduating class, the same could be true of Germany and Europe and the global order in total. Everything is possible. We shouldn't be taking anything for granted. And letting go of the old is part of a new beginning. For some leaders like Angela Merkel in Germany, where she's been in power since longer than we've had smartphones and led her political party since before 9-11, this is a major change. And Germany is an important part of the world order. It's not only the largest economy in Europe, but it's been a longtime ally of America. America has its largest overseas military presence there. We all know the world history that revolves around Germany and Europe. Those things probably aren't going to change anytime soon, especially with the entanglements between Germany and Russia and other world players. So it's important for us, no matter what nation we live into, to pay attention to our allies and friends over there, places like Germany, when they have major changes like this, and how it affects our relationship. We're all in this thing together on global Earth, despite what some folks tell us. And understanding why and how our allies do things will be important in maintaining those allies and relationships going forward. We're going to need each other. The world isn't going to get less dangerous. It's not going to get less complicated. And it's not going to get any less befuddling as to why certain people do certain things. And just like in our home lives and in our personal relationships, we're going to need our friends to get through hard times. The Germans have been a very good friend to America and the Western world for many, many years. And long may it continue under the new leadership. That'll do it for Herd Tell. Thank Alexander Bowen for joining us. He's another one of the great Young Voices contributors that we use. He's repping Young Voices UK and the London Neoliberal Project. Make sure you follow him. We're excited about that partnership. We have some exciting news coming out soon about Young Voices that we've used them and other people that have been guests on Herd Tell. It's all part of us continuing to try to bring you voices that you may not get to hear in other media outlets, but are important, who know what they're talking about, and can help us turn down the news cycle noise and dig into the information that we really need to discern and understand our times. As always, we appreciate you listening wherever you're listening to this podcast at, whatever platform you're on, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google. We're, we're on platforms. I had to go look and make sure we were on them because I didn't even know about them. There's so many outlets now. Herdtel is on almost all of them. You can find us. 
especially the new artwork that's all up. We thank Vu Tran and Steven and the folks at Young Voices for putting that together for us. The new artwork and graphics look great. So if you haven't been on the YouTube page or one of the other outlets, make sure you go check it out. It looks really sharp. Going to have some exciting stuff coming soon. All those platforms, if they give you the option to leave a comment and a rating, please do so. It's really important. It only takes you a moment and a couple of clicks, but it means the world to us because that lets other people know that what we're doing is worth their time to invest in, to listen to, and to share with other people. We'd sure appreciate it if you would. And wherever this is finding you, across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well-fed. We hope you're happy. And we can't wait to talk to you again next time on Herd Tell. Y'all take care. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.